afternoon, everybody. I'm delighted to be asked to give the opening lecture in this series. It's always a pleasure to come and speak in the Academy in, the, in this wonderful meeting room. I'm very grateful to the Academy for asking me, in particular, of course, to Siobhan Fitzpatrick for the invitation. It was explained to me that one of the reasons for holding the, the lovely exhibition that's over there on my right and on your left is to participate a little in the, the commemoration of the and indeed celebration of the, the 1918 representation of the People Act, which gave um, the vote to at least some women. But I think it's important that we mark another act in, in this um, lecture series. Another act pa passed in the Union Parliament, Westminster, in the following year, in 1919, which is in many ways more relevant. The 1919 Sex Disqualification Removal Act, a bit of a mouthful, made it illegal to exclude women from incorporated societies, such as the Royal Irish Academy, on grounds of sex or of mar marital status. And equally, next year will be a significant anniversary for the RIA because it will be 70 years since it admitted the first women as ordinary members, some 164 years since its foundation, and a mere 30 years after it was made illegal to continue to exclude them. So my purpose, partly at least today, is to explore why this academy, along with so many others in these two islands and indeed further afield, why they took so long to open their membership to qualified women. After all, in the case of the Royal Irish Academy, there was no regulation in the founding charter or in any subsequent iterations of the charter to say that membership was reserved for men only. The answer to that question, why it took so long, therefore lies elsewhere. But let's begin with the foundation of the Royal Irish Academy in 1785. It, it was... The, the Academy was modelled to a considerable degree on the Royal Society in London, a body which had been founded over 100 years before, um, in 1660, and it became the representative body for science um, in, uh, in Britain. And the, uh, the Royal Irish Academy saw itself in that mode. Its, its purpose its mission statement, if you like, which was, uh, which was there in the charter and there in the, the first volume of its transactions in 1787. It's, 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 so it's, it's, it said that it, it had been founded to advance knowledge and learning um, in Ireland. Now, it had a broader focus than the Royal Society, it has to be said, because, of course, it had three sections, science, uh, antiquities and polite literature, um, you know, as we would think of now, literary studies. So, uh, and it, it, in this, it resembles smaller countries, like, for example, Belgium, where, again, the Learned Academy, the National Academy there, uh, was one which combined, if you like, all the discipline or all the areas of, of learning. And a very sensible idea in a small country where it simply wasn't possible in terms of a learned elite to support a series of different um, societies. But re regardless of this wider remit, the, the, the Royal Irish Academy took much of its values and its procedures from um, the Royal Society. Now, recent studies by historians, um, and I'll be coming back to the Royal Society, that's why I'm em emphasising it here. Recent studies by historians and sociologists of the exclusion of women 
from National Academies of Learning have focused on strategies beyond the overt no women allowed rules um, by which such institutions were preserved or largely preserved for so long as male only spaces. Greta Nordenbos, for example, writing in Women's Studies International Forum in 2002 on um, women in academies of sciences, and more work has been done on the, the scientific academies than, and, and women than, elsewhere, and than, than, than others. So Nordenbos, in this article, pointed to a long list of factors um, that explain the still glacial progress towards significant female representation in such institutions. So she's taking, she's actually looking at the position now, or position in 2002, but then looking at how it had evolved, how, <laughs> how evolution was going so slowly. So among the factors that she identifies are, again, long-term factors, um, was the, the shift in science, in scientific studies in the 17th century, um, where it moved out of the drawing room and into the laboratory. Um, and so it became less, uh, uh, you know, something that all the families, so to speak, could become involved in. Um, uh, laboratories or uh, um, uh, th these kind of professional spaces were uh, tended to be male um, only. Um, so the learned society, in that sense, was the corollary of the of, of the uh, of the laboratory. Science was being devalued as as an amateur pursuit. It was increasingly seen as uh, professional and as as masculine, um, and that was reinforced by um, the the recognition through the 18th, especially into the 19th century, of science as a salaried profession. So scientists were being um, patronised. They were being given pensions like, for example, um, William Herschel, Caroline Herschel's uh, brother over here, and indeed Caroline herself, who uh, were, um, were given a, a pension, an annual income from George III. Um, but Ca Caroline's, uh, the fact that Caroline was paid was very unusual, because most um, women scientists could not um, hope to be paid for their scientific work usually, um, especially if they were married. It simply wouldn't have been respectable to be a paid, an employee of any, of any kind. And as the 19th century went on, um, increasingly the need for a, a university degree uh, uh, you know, was recognised as um, something that certainly, if not essential, but desired for entry into learned societies. And of course, women were excluded from the universities until the late 19th century. Something else which went on past in, into the 20th century and, and maybe a factor even today was restriction in membership of such societies. Usually there was a fixed number of uh, memberships or fellowships, whatever term we uh, want to use for them, and a waiting list um, for, for filling those. Men often had to wait for years to, um, uh, to, to, to get that recognition of admission to a learned society. So they were in no hurry to open it up um, to another group who would make these waiting lists um, even uh, longer. Another feature of learned societies that, again, tended towards the exclusion of, uh, um, of, uh, of women was that new members were usually elected by existing um, members. This could bring into play more subtle forms of exclusion and discrimination by male networks, which have been identified by the sociolo uh, sociologist Raymond Murphy as uh, what he calls social 
closure or the theory of monopolization and exclusion, which is a book that um, he brought out in 1988. According to this theory, male members perceive themselves as a selective in-group with high status uh, and saw women as an out-group with lower status. They would only elect new members with the same characteristics who were well known to existing members. This is called the similar to me effect. Um, so social and gender homogeneity made it difficult for male members to see women as one of, um, of us. So how were such institutions to recognize outstanding women of learning as they, as they did? Uh, so one way of doing this, uh, of national academies doing this, was to uh, do so to recognize them by means of honorary uh, memberships. And of course, the Royal Irish Academy was no uh, exception. Five women were thus honoured in the first century of its existence, and you can see the exhibition over there. And of course, four of these are the subject of, um, of the talks which um, follow on um, in the, uh, the weeks to come. Now, offering honorary membership to internationally renowned women scholars could also be used to signal the status of the RIA as a fully participating institute in international scientific um, culture. Thus, the Academy made the science writer and mathematician Mary Somerville, um, and I just realize I'm ignoring my slides here, um, so that's just another uh, a welcoming uh, kind of image of the uh, of Academy House outside. Um, so the, the Academy made the science writer and mathematician Mary Somerville an honorary member in 1834, one year in advance of the Royal Astronomical Society. In 1838, the astronomer Caroline Herschel, who had been honoured at the same time with Mary Somerville by the Royal Astronomical Society, um, so Herschel was offered honorary membership by the Royal Irish Academy. So I have my Mary Somerville here and the same uh, image I notice of uh, Caroline Herschel in, in, uh, in old age um, there. Now, part of the attraction of honoring Somerville and Herschel is that they were foreign female luminaries, and therefore there was no danger that they could lay claim to occupy the space or privileges of full academicians. This is analogous to the response of the Royal Society in London to Somerville's growing reputation. They stopped short of making her an honorary fellow. They did not make women honorary fellows. But instead, they commissioned a portrait bust of her. This is it, which was installed in their great hall. She, of course, never saw the bust in place. Among, it was placed among other scientific luminaries in this hall of you know, great figures. Because as a woman, she was not even allowed into the building. Luckily, her husband, who was a member, was able to report to her on how it looked. Thus, ways were developed to recognize international female ach achievement without threatening the boundaries of male-only space. And I think space is important here, these lovely spaces. Now, in um, 1842, the Royal Irish Academy elected the first of its two Irish female honorary members. This was Mariah Edgeworth, the best-known male or female Irish novelist of the day who enjoyed huge commercial success. Her father, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, had been a, found, a founder member of the Academy, having been one of the famous Lunar Society of Birmingham before he moved to Ireland. The minutes of the Academy record that Mariah was elected by, by acclamation, it says, 
but it could be said that they had waited until almost the last minute to honour her, given that she was 74 in 1842 and with her creative years behind her. So it's just a year after that daguerreotype um, early uh, photograph was, uh, was taken that um, she was admitted to honorary membership um, of this institution. Now, four years before being made an honorary academician, when her friend, the mathematician William Rowan Hamilton, as newly elected president of the RIA, consulted her as to how best the academy could advance the interests of polite literature in Ireland. They felt that the, the science and antiquity sections of the academy were thriving, but the polite literature, quite, quite accurate, was really um, languishing. So as a new president, um, obviously Hamilton had this as a, as a project to revive it. Um, so in, in response uh, to, to her, you know, her to being consulted, um, Mariah Edgeworth suggested that women sh uh, could be invited to attend evening op open meetings in the academy. And her, her letter is over there, I noticed it's on top of the, um, of the, uh, the, the glass case uh, devoted uh, to her in the uh, exhibition. Now, Hamilton was completely taken aback by this suggestion. Um, and he then, in a really agonizing fashion, he listed the reasons why this would not do, ranging from the crush that this would cause in their meeting room, presumably, again, the, the large gowns that women uh, wore would, would have ha been a factor there, um, and, uh, but also um, citing the need to discuss, uh, the need that there would be to discuss legal or financial business, which would not be fitting for a woman to hear. Edward's response to this, with its use of irony and tongue-in-cheek feminine meekness, gives us some insight into how eligible women could be sharply aware of the strategies that were being used to exclude them. So this is from the, uh, the, the letter. I'm rather sorry that you wasted a page upon a suggestion of mine which you have completely convinced me could not be carried into effect, and which, at the moment I put it on paper, seemed to me to be too ladylike a scheme to smell too much of the drawing room, if not of the shop. Ooh. You are certainly, as you have proved to me, physically and morally and intellectually better without the ladies. Now, a while later, a good while later, <laughs> we're moving on from 1838 to 1876, the Academy elected its second Irish honorary female member, um, the antiquarian artist Margaret Stokes, sister of uh, the Royal Irish Academy member, the philologist Whitley um, Stokes. And I stress these family connections because I think they are important in terms of networks. Networks are really important in um, a, a career advancement and, and, and recognition, achievement recognition. And, and without them, uh, without these family networks, these women wouldn't have had other networks. They only had family ones. Um, lovely, a beautiful um, um, uh, early photograph of Margaret Stokes here, which I stole off the uh, Academy website. Thank you very much. And thank you to Bernadette for the blog for, for, for the exhibitions. It's, it's really very, very good. Um, and this is a wonderful image of her sketching um, in old, in again, I, I'm sure not long before she died. So Margaret uh, Stokes was also the f not not alone the first, you know the uh, an early um, honorary uh, female honorary member, but she was also the first woman who 
as honorary member, who wrote papers to be read out at meetings of Royal Irish Academy um, members. Um, these papers were subsequently published in the Academy's journal. Now, at first, these were read out or communicated, as the term went, by members, actually usually by the secretary of the Royal Irish Academy. But in 1899, um, she herself read a, a paper on the high crosses of Moon, etc., a few places, at the meeting annually reserved for the pre president's address. So that would be the meeting of the 30th of November of that year, of 1899. And this has been suggested by the late Ida Nihuma, late of this um, institution, and much regret it, um, that uh, it has been suggested by her in her paper, and she was the first person to reach, to investigate um, the whole issue of uh, women and the, and the Royal Irish Academy. So she suggested this was a, really a sign of high regard, the high regard in which Margaret Stokes was held by Royal Irish Academy um, uh, members, that she, that she was, you know, that she was allowed you know, to be present, but also to speak um, at this the particularly important um, uh, November meeting of the uh, of the academy. Now, other learned societies began to open up to women. Um, other Irish learned societies began to open up to women towards the end of the 19th century. Um, I have a couple here. For example, the Royal Ar uh, the Royal Dublin Society in 1887 uh, decided that members might be either men or women, and that the terms he and his in the bylaws could mean either, uh, you know, could, could be taken to mean uh, she, he, uh, she and her as well. They also decided to admit women as what they called associates with limited privileges. Um, uh, and uh, this measure um, of, of bringing in, introducing associates, um, female associates, um, it was recorded in their, their history published in 1915. It was recorded as a great success with 1,200 women uh, enrolled within a few years. Um, of course, the RDS had a, had a, a fine library. Um, similarly, the, the Royal Society of Antiquaries in Ireland, which went through a few different um, uh, you know, e evolutions and names, but we, I'll just I'll call, call it by the name it's um, it's uh, it's known now. It was admitting women as members from at least 1880 to judge by its proceedings, and that's what I've used to to um, where they give lists of memberships. And I can certainly see women members from 1880. It's interesting that in the journals around that time as well, the, they did record that there was a crisis in their membership. Their, their numbers were declining. Um, so that may have been uh, one uh, incentive um, for admitting uh, women. And interestingly as well, and significantly enough, there, the, um, uh, the Royal Society of Antiquities had two categories. It, ha it had members, but it had fellows. And the fellows had votes, so they controlled the society. There were no female fellows that I could certainly uh, find, find just, um, just members. And of course, as well as the you know, chinks appearing in these learned societies, the universities were opening up their male-only spaces to women uh, um, uh, uh, around the, uh, this time. Uh, so from the early 1880s, the Queen's Colleges began to admit women students with Trinity College um, Dublin bringing up the rear in 1904. Once women could take university degrees, it was only a matter of time uh, that there would be pressure um, to admit them to the established learned societies. 
For example, in 1904, 18 women chemists petitioned the Chemical Society in London to be considered for fellowships. Um, that's because they'd, they'd done, they'd, these, these women had done chemistry um, degrees. The petition was turned down, however. Two years before that, in 1902, the Royal Society in London received its first nomination of a woman as um, fellow. So I told you I'd get back to the Royal Society. This was, this is a fantastic building that they have, really much bigger than there's much more modest to building uh, in comparison, Carlton House um, Terrace. The, this woman was the Hertha, Hertha Ayrton, um, and she was a physicist and an electrical engineer, very well respected um, at the time. And she was nominated by a handful of fellows of the Royal Society for a fellowship. The, and there, there's a couple of, here she is actually with some of her instruments in an early photograph. Her husband was a, a, a fellow. Um, again, so you've got that, these family networks are important. Now, the nomination was refused um, with the backing of legal advice. This is the legal part of the legal advice in 1902 to them. We are of the opinion that married women are not eligible as fellows of the Royal Society. Whether the charters admit of the election of unmarried women appears to us uh, to be very uh, doubtful. Uh, the legal advice also said that no new statute added to the charter could make married women eligible to be admitted as fellows. Um, and this is interesting, this emphasis on marriage disqualifying women from being considered. Um, and they don't, they, don't, they don't explain it. Nobody ever seems to explain it. Um, and we can only surmise, at least I can only surmise, that it, it was an effect of that ca common law doctrine of couverture, that a woman, uh, uh, when she married, lost her um, legal identity and, and was subsumed into that of her, of her husband. And I think I can only imagine that that's uh, what they're... Uh, that's what they're worrying uh, or anxious about uh, here. And Hertha Ayrton, as I said, was, um, was married. So the, the advice was that um, if, um, uh, you know, that, that if, um, uh, if there was to be any movement, a supplementary charter would have to be drawn up. And that usually seems, in, I think in quite a number of the cases, be, to be enough to, to put it away, because a supplementary charter is, it was a very big deal. Now, the reason that I have access to this document, to this legal advice to the British Academy, and, and I got access to it without visiting the British Academy Library and Archives, is that I found it here in the Royal Irish Academy files. Because the, the, the Royal Irish Academy officers furnished themselves with a copy of it. When eight years later, in 1910, they were faced with their first female nominee, the Academy records do not give the woman's name. She is re simply referred to as a widow lady. So the widow is put in bra brackets between the A and the lady. So a widow lady. Again, interesting um, uh, that, that her, her marital status comes in here. No, so when I start, first started working on this, and when I, f I first saw the, that, that record, I, I didn't know, none of us knew who this widow um, lady uh, was. But 
Um, since then, um, in the academy here, they've been doing work on uh, and digitizing the membership proposals that they have. So this would be the form that was filled out um, to propose uh, a person for membership of the, uh, of the academy. Um, and so the uh, proposal of this widow la lady has um, been found. And here it is, handwritten, and you've got uh, her name. Um, she's down as, as Mrs. Mary Hutton of Appian Way in, uh, in Dublin. And what the handwriting this says, it's down the side, it says qualification. Um, and her qualification is that she has made extensive studies on the ancient Irish manuscripts bearing on the Cúchulain sagas, has translated the Tóinbol Cúlne into English verse with learned notes on the topography. Um, and indeed, that book had been um, published in, in 1907, the Tóin, an Irish epic told in English verse by Mary A. or Mary Ann um, Hutton. Um, and it came out again in a, a more lavish, a rather beautiful second uh, edition from the Talbot Press with, with these lovely um, illustrations by, um, by John Campbell. And there was a third edition as well. So it was, it was, it was well received uh, indeed. Let's have a look at the, at the members who, who nominated her, her there on the 27th of January, 19, uh, 1910. We have uh, on Craveen, Douglas um, Hyde, president of the Gaelic League. The name underneath, I actually cannot make out. I've tried my very best. If anybody in here can help me with it, I'd be... It's, you see, I couldn't get the G. It's, I've been great. Edward Grin, thank you very much. I'm going to have to write that in. Um, I, should have I should have rung you about that. And then Louis, Louis uh, Purser, Secretary of the Royal Irish Academy. And then uh, Thomas J. Westrop, renowned antiquary and uh, council member. And finally, um, John McNeil, Owen McNeil, Professor of Early Irish History in UCD. And if you see the first two of these here beside it, what's written is from personal knowledge. So that would be Edward Gwynn and um, Douglas Hyde know her. And again, it, 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 what this does is to indicate that personal networks are really important. It's the fact that these two people know her. In this case, it's not family networks, but she knows these people because she's active in the Gaelic League um, with them. So she has a, a wider network. Also, the other thing to be said, is what's critical is the role of progressive men. It's really crucial in opening up hitherto male-only institutions to women. So if we think of the vote, for example, if we think of the uh, representation of the People Act, if we think of the 1919 Act, um, pushing those were uh, were men in, in Westminster, were um, a, a, you know, a small number of really committed um, male MPs. So um, we, can, we can chart um, these, these names down as very honourable um, men. So, so there was, the, um, there was the, the nomination. At a special meeting of council in February 1910 to discuss the issue, two contrasting documents were circulated. Firstly, that legal council's opinion furnished to the Royal Society in 1902, that their charter definitely precluded married women joining and very probably single women also. So that's what I, I, I gave you a, a taste of there. And secondly, the res resolution of the Linnaean Society. Now, the Linnaean Society was the, the society for biologists um, in London, founded 
virtually the same time as the Royal Irish Academy, 1788, just three years um, later. And they resolved, the Linnaean Society had resolved in 1903 to apply for a supplemental charter to amend their existing charters by including the words without distinction of sex. So, the, so they had the, the uh, members of the Royal Irish Academy Council had uh, those two documents. Now, a motion was introduced at that council meeting to accept the nomination under the usual procedures and to put it to a ballot of members. And here's what the minutes of this special meeting council um, say in February. After some discussion, it was moved that this council, though the usage of the academy only shows that women have been elected honorary members, finding that there is no clause in their charter or statutes excluding women, directs that the certificate of a woman candidate be read to the academy today. So in other words, put to the ballot. However, an amendment to this was passed to defer the issue until legal opinion was obtained. Writing then the following September, the Academy's solicitor dismissed the argument that the absence of an explicit exclusion of women members in the Charter was significant. Um, so this is what, uh, what she said. In my opinion, a woman is not eligible for membership of the Academy under the existing Charter. The original members incorporated were all men, and the language used shows that it was clearly intended that only men could fill the offices of president and um, vice president. And he went on, it may safely be assumed that the admission of women as members was never contemplated, much less intended, by the framers of the, uh, of the charter. Now, relying heavily in, his in, in this opinion on that supply to the Royal Society in 1902, he, the, the Academy's um, solicitor advised that a supplemental charter would have to be obtained in order to lawfully admit women to the membership. And that's where the matter rested for another while, another near decade, until 1919, when Westminster passed this act, the Sex Disqualification Removal Act, and the first article of it said, among, amongst other things, that a person shall not be disqualified by sex or marriage from the exercise of any public function. And then it, it's talking about essentially about law and courts, and, and it's what opened up the legal profession uh, to women. Or that it should not be disqualified um, from admission to any incorporated society, whether incorporated by royal charter or otherwise or otherwise. Okay, and it goes on then. It's also what opened up juries to women. Women had to um, undertake jury service on virtually the same terms as, uh, as men. So this is a really important act, and it's, it's the kind of, uh, it's the, the sister act to the Representation of the People Act of, of 1918, and it was put through, it was pushed through in Westminster by exactly the same combination of um, liberally-minded feminist MPs. Um, um, uh, it's, a really, it's a really important uh, act for that reason. I'm hoping it'll be properly um, celebrated and commemorated next year. Now, so what was the position after that? So, well, <laughs> you can tell, you can tell from this exhibition, you can tell from, from if you know anything about the history of this institution, it's well known that a number of learned societies in the two islands uh, were rather slow to react to this unambiguously 
enabling act. This is what enabled them to admit women members. But there were some honourable exceptions to that reluctance to move. So, for example, the Chemical Society, which, if you remember, had been under siege from earlier on by, by no less than 18 women wanting to join. So they did actually you know, take it seriously, and they began to admit women as fellows from 1920. And another society, again, a sister society of the, of the academy, really, uh, of, certainly of the antiquity side, side of it. So the Society of Antiquaries, which had not elected women uh, honorary uh, fellows did so immediately or, um, because the act would have come into uh, into uh, into law in, in 1920 um, and then elected its first um, female ordinary um, fellow in uh, in 1925 now the irish academies had perhaps um, the excuse that the act came at a time of political and military upheaval in this country, just as the, the War of Independence got underway. The new Irish um, Free State that came into existence in 1922 gave a clear, but as it turned out, misleading signal of progressive tendencies in terms of women's rights by granting the vote to all citizens without distinction of sex, so using that, that key phrase, at the age of 21 while 30 remained the qualifying age for British and Northern Irish women until 1928. British statute and common law up to 1920 continued to have force in Ireland unless or until um, uh, amended or repealed by the Irish government. So that the 1919 Sex Disqualification Removal Act remained um, valid. In 1927, um, as part of a backlash against women's rights, the Irish Free State Government amended the 1919 Sex Disqualification Removal Act in order to abolish women's duty to undertake jury service and requiring them to opt in should, should they, for jury service should they so wish. Given the government's determination to reassert legally the traditional place of women in the home rather than, than in public life. The status of the 1919 Act was felt to be in doubt throughout the 1920s. And this provides one possible explanation for the reluctance of the RIA to accept the legal position and open its membership to women. When in 1930, so that's 11 years later, the Council finally sought legal opinion on, uh, on the question in the light of the 1919 Act, their solicitor, the same solicitor, wrote since advising on this question in the year 1910, the position of women has entirely altered by the Sex Disqualification Removal Act, 1919. This statute applied to Ireland and its operation in the Irish Free State was continued by Article 73 of the Constitution, unless and until it is repealed or amended. It has not been appealed or amended by any Free State statute, so far at any rate as the question involved in this case is concerned. So that's, that's acknowledging that it had been um, amended to remove the jury service the, uh, obligation. Um, but it's like as if they, they waited around for those 10 years to see would anything else be um, altered in the Act. But finally, at this stage, their solicitor is saying it's not going to be removed that um, uh, the, the injunction that they must open their 
um, membership to women. But he had, his, his interpretation was nonetheless really conservative. The charter of the academy must now be read as applying to women as well as men. It is, however, to be observed that the statute referred to only deals with admission to any incorporated society. So that's the, a quote from the 1919 Act. This means, in my opinion, that they may become members of any such society, but cannot, in my opinion, be read as meaning that women could be elected to the office of president or vice president or other official position in the academy. I'm accordingly of opinion that women can now be elected members of the Royal Irish Academy, but not to any of the other, other offices referred to. So tell that to Professor Mary Daly, who was the last uh, president um, uh, of the Academy before the, the current holder. So in uh, 1931, the RIA, like the other reluctant learned societies of the two islands, had to bow to the inevitable. The president, according to the council minutes of the president of the academy, quote, made a statement informing the, the council that legal opinion had been taken on the question of the eligibility of women for membership of the, uh, of the academy. The opinion given was that in the existing state of the law, women are eligible. So that's 1931. Fast forward as we have to, <laughs> to another, the guts of two decades, uh, because, of course, you have the hiatus, another uh, military um, a huge crisis, the Second World War. So the first women members were not elected until after the Second World War. Now this was in line with other national academies of science in particular, including the Royal Society of London, which in 1945 admitted its first two women fellows, one indeed an Irish woman, as it happens, the crystallographer Kathleen Lonsdale. Others that waited until after World War II were the Estonian, the Finnish, Hungarian, and Dutch academies. And plenty more waited until the 1950s, and getting the prize for the, the most Johnny-come-lately was France, where the Académie des Sciences finally admitted its first woman member in 1979. So the Royal Irish Academy was 30 years before that, so that's something to, at least to, to, to be aware of. So in 1949, four women were admitted as members of the uh, Royal Irish Academy. There were two scientists, the first lecturer in maths physics, Sheila uh, Power, uh, who, who then on marriage became uh, Tinney, lecturer in maths physics in UCD, um, and uh, this wonderful um, photograph was given to me by her son, who's Hugh Tinney, the, the pianist. Um, I found it, when I started working on this verse, very hard to get photographs of these four women. I'm glad to see, and indeed of, of, of others. I'm glad to say the situation has changed now. The second, um, also from UCD, Phyllis Clinch, lecturer in botany, who became in, in early 1960s professor of uh, botany in, um, in UCD. Um, and somebody, again, who had to serve a long period before she even became a lecturer. She, like a lot of the women, um, she, she was appointed an assistant um, um, before finally being admitted to full lectureship. But it's not just the academies that are slow, as we know. So these are the, these are the two in the, in the sciences, and then two in the uh, humanities. The art, art historian um, in the UCD archaeology department, Françoise Henri, um, and the um, final one, um, Eleanor Nott, who's professor of early Irish in Trinity um, College, Dublin. Um, and again, um, 
I had no photographs in, when I first started um, um, researching here and publishing on it. I had no photographs for Francoise Henri. I hadn't, I hadn't really, I hadn't a decent photograph of Eleanor Knott. And I actually didn't have a decent photograph of, of um, Phyllis Clinch. And I think that's not an accident. You know, I think it really was uh, that, that, you know, nobody, they had, they had no pro profile and they had no profile. It's not even just that I couldn't find them on the web. I actually tried really hard to get them from um, the from UCD and from fair, anyone, any of my networks and found it very difficult. So it's great that they have a visibility um, now. Now, so they're the first women. Then things changed again. In, you know, in other words, it didn't just stop there. In, in the next decade, from 1950 to 1957, um, seven more women were elected. Now, that, it has to be said that's less than one, an average of one um, per, per year. Um, three in the sciences and um, four in the in the humanities. As, as you can expect, it was, you know, there, there were more women scholars in the humanities than the sciences, so you would expect there would be a, a bias uh, towards the, the humanities. And so that made their, their, their names, that made a total of 11 women members in 1957. We'll fast forward to part of history that I experienced myself, and to being here in uh, just next door in the in the library in in 1987 when i saw a group of a, a group coming through the library um all quite formal in a way and coming in here now, now i i used to think it was a meeting of the academy but i think it was probably a meeting of council um and i was really struck because it was just one woman and low and the, like, big group of men. So I asked at the desk, you know, what, what's going on in there? And I was told it was a meeting of the academy. And I went, wow, you know, there's one woman in this in, in this group. And uh, well, that that should have, you know, once I, once I found out what the figures were at that time, it made total sense to me. Because just as there were 11 um, female um, members of the Royal Irish Academy in, in 1957, so in 1987, 30, um, 30 years later, there were still 11 members. 11 female members and that's that's what the pie chart looks like that's what the the you know if you think in terms of male and, and female spaces that's the space that the women um members took up in 1987 when i saw that procession that got me thinking about all of this incidentally the form used to propose new members uh, of the royal irish academy was still referring to candidates as male only as late as 1990. This is what it said. We, the undersigned, so they'd be the proposers, propose and recommend him as deserving that honor and as likely to pr pr prove a useful and valuable member. Essentially, the proposal form was unchanged in wording since 1910 when Mary Ann Hutton was rejected. It's since changed in, in, you know, significantly. So continuing the, the, the narrative of the process of modernization and inclusion, by, two, by 2009, so where are we there? We're, we're 22 years later, is it? There were 47 female MRIAs, um, which is, you know, that's a, a quadrupling and, and more of the, um, of the number of women. But as the overall membership had increased significantly as well, and not as significantly, but it increased to 422 from 250. The gender breakdown in percentage terms remained starkly imbalanced at 81 to 11, so 81% male to 11% female. A further sampling in 2015 reveals continued progress. 
the gender balance standing at 82% male to 18% female. What this means is that the Royal Irish Academy now matches the universities, where the number of women who are promoted to professorships stands at 19%. Uh, so it's more or less the same. So if we go, I like doing this because it really gives you a sense. So the, their share is getting bigger, but <laughs> if, that, if you call that um, progress, it is progress, but the pace is achingly um, slow. The Academy, in response to the Higher Education Authority report on gender in higher education institutions, which was published in 2016, has committed to increasing the number of women final candidates put forward for election to the membership to a minimum of 40%, averaged over um, the period, a three-year period, 2018, so now until 2021. It's actually a 40% male, it has to be either 40% male or 40% female. In other words, it has to, it has to be a 60-40 split, one way or the other, male to female, female to male. However, given that this year, 2018, only 25% of those elected were women, so if you, if you look at it in, in terms of sciences, there were 11 new members um, taken in uh, earlier in the, in, in the summer, 10 men and one woman in the sciences. And in the humanities and social sciences, where you'd expect there to be more, perhaps more, uh, you know, uh, more candidates. Um, there are 13 in total, eight men and, um, and five uh, women. In looking at our pie chart, that's, that's how it looks. Again, uh, it's a bit bigger, but is it very much bigger, um, given, you know, given how long this has been um, going on? Um, and so we're talking about 25%. That's that nice, neat sliver there. Um, well, more than a sliver, it is a slice. So let's say now we're on, onto a slice of the pie. But if we're thinking of that three-year period where you, you've, got to, you've got to have a minimum of 40% um, female um, new members, what that means is to hit the target, ne next year and the following year, they have to hit, it has to be nearly 50% women in both of those years to make the 40% um, target. So, and that would be great achievement and, and let's hope it does, uh, it does happen. Let's finish on a, uh, on a more, um, a, a kind of more positive um, note and that's the Women on Walls um, project where Accenture in partnership with the Royal Irish Academy in 2016 went about making um, you know, women in, in uh, women leaders um, visible, and in this case, um, the four early, uh, the four first women fellows were uh, their portraits were painted by Vera Clute, and uh, uh, and it's marvelous to see them. Um, and again, as I say, just because not 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 alone because they're they're very fine works, but also because there are so few photographs. And indeed, Vera Clute said that she found it, it was quite a challenge to. To, to carry out this commission because she had so few photographic records of um, of these women, and it's you know that says so much um, in it in itself. But it's great to see those women um, visible and to see that Accenture have continued that with in in, in partnership with the Royal uh, College of Surgeons in Ireland, where again they have more women up on um, on walls. And of course these um, portraits are here in the academy for the, uh, the public to look at. So. Let's finish with that, that idea of visibility of, of women fellows as 
uh, as truly visible. And let's think of Mariah Edgeworth um, over here, who'd surely be pleased that the Royal Irish Academy no longer believes that it is, quote, better without the ladies. Thank you very much.